0: hello and welcome to the low tech lecture series the following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the low technology institute the ideas expressed are those of the speaker we hope you find it informative and entertaining as it is unedited audio quality varies stay tuned after the lecture for information about the low technology institute and its other offerings or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com thanks and enjoy this lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Yeah, The modern idea of uh, recycling to save the, the environment is is fairly new, although we do see societies in the past kind of doing that. In, uh, for example, in the Maya area, when trees became less prolific around sites because they've been chopping them down for generations, they would... Uh, use a lot thinner plaster on their floors. Uh, because plaster takes a lot of trees. You have to burn the limestone to make the plaster basically concrete. And so in the beginning, they would make these really big, thick floors. But by the end, probably partially due to economics and maybe to preserve what they have left, they would make these much thinner floors. So whether or not it was an overt, we need to conserve what we have around us, or hey, it's just a lot more difficult or expensive to get uh, wood now we should conserve. So there's probably some a little of both going on here, it sounds like. probably. What did they do with the stuff that they like, ended up not using again? They just like, put it in a pile somewhere? Often, yeah. A lot of people just had like trash pits in the backyard, which is great for us as archaeologists because then they just throw all their trash in. It's called a, you know, a midden. Just throw it all in one pile. It's great. In cities, though, they might have had... Um, they might have separated out their biological waste, like their compost, and very well would have probably had compost piles that would be connected to gardens. In um, in the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, they actually had canoes that would go around between all the houses that were connected by canals, and they would like take um, the human human waste and other biological waste, and they would go and put it in the big piles and make compost out of it. Yeah, they did that shamelessly. Really, the, yeah. It's a, it's a TV show oh. on Netflix. Some like there's a part where they go to like some uh, commune mm-hmm. and there's like this one guy is in charge of the compost and he didn't know what it was. And nice. You know, <laughs> Humanure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the only <laughs> problem is it potential, yeah, potential uh, disease vectors. But yeah, we're flushing a lot of uh, nutrients down the tubes. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. All right. So uh, under-caffeinated and shooting from the hip today, so we're going to have fun. Uh, so uh, we we're just wrapping up talking about uh, how we can tell the origin of some, loca- of some um, items that we find in the archaeological record that have been traded in. And I talked about uh, really briefly just about uh, those trace elements. Uh, or chemical signatures that things like pottery or stone tools or other materials would have, that might help you trace them back to their origin. You can even do this with people. Um, Remember when we talked about bioarchaeology a couple weeks ago, that uh, you kind of are what you eat, and if you're eating plants or animals from one location, they're going to have grown eating um, plants that had, The local geological signature because they get all of their elements from the ground and therefore uh, the trace elements that occur on at different ratios across the landscape might give you an indication of where the body is even from same thing goes here with um, actual items i mentioned mill creek chert hose and this is a super pixelated almost useless graph that shows you that uh, they are much more prolific around the center where they're from and their use was widespread, but it was much more concentrated around where they were. So you can see the fall off curve, but it's not quite concentric rings, is it? It follows the river because the river would have provided easy transport for a lot of these hoes. Um, And as you can see, this is kind of a progression. They started out very large and they were worked smaller and smaller. And the farther away you get, The more uh, small, uh, the the longer their lives would be prolonged. Right? They would try and stretch out the use life of the different um, uh, of the Mill Creek material because it was so good. But near the center, they would probably just throw it away a little earlier because they can get more very easily. So, if we're looking at this fall off curve, where the amount of any one material declines in the distance from its its origin point, um, we can, if we plot it in in this way, we can sometimes figure out what type of exchange. So if we have a really smooth fall-off curve like this, we're probably looking at something like direct access or down the line. So very smooth. Um, if we're looking at something that has quite a bit larger distance where we're finding things very far away, like the Mill Creek Church map we looked at just a minute ago, um, we're probably looking at something like down-the-line trading uh, or uh, something that has beyond one person going to get it, right? Because you're not going to travel from you know, here down to southern Illinois and back to get a couple of hoes. You're going to depend on trade networks, so that stretches out the distance. And then sometimes we'll see a rise, a bump in uh, the exchange. It won't be a smooth curve. There will be a bump at a certain distance from the center, and that usually represents where a market or a large city is because that city will be importing it, and then they will become a central node of distribution, and people will get it from that city, right? So we can can see it um, in that way with this fall-off curve. And then we have this weird-looking one. And it uh, is really here to remind us that it's all not quite so simple as uh, materials spreading out across the landscape. Uh, there are often two different types of transportation going on. And you might have land giving you that smooth fall off curve that you might get from down the line trading, coupled with something like water trade, which might really up the distance. Um, And this kind of kerfuffle here, or this uh, bogging out of the water curve before it comes back up, illustrates that when you're really close, there's really no point in doing long-distance water trade to get something. It's just as easy to walk and go get it. But after a certain point, uh, water trade becomes more important. And uh, you'll find more things transported by water Past a certain distance, usually it's like how far you can walk in a day or a couple of days or something like that. Um, There will be a a point at which um, a society makes the decision, ah, this is too far to walk, let's rely on water transport instead. And that's where you see, whoop, water um, become even more important. So sometimes we'll get these weird curves, but it's really because we're looking at two curves added together. So it adds a little bit of complication there. Sometimes we don't have to look at it in two dimensions on a graph. We can plot, just like using a topographic map, we can plot the incidence of certain um, types of artifacts or artifacts from a certain location uh, using basically the same idea as topographic maps. Here um, we might be looking at the exchange of, say, roman uh, influence goods, for example, and... You know they're centered around London and the main central area, the coastal regions where you know there were different ports. Um, but then on the outlying areas, there was less influence from Roman style um, artifacts, for example. And since we're putting this in three dimensions, you can get a lot, or excuse me, two dimensions, you can get a lot more, um, get a lot more social context information, and not just looking at the. Um, the fall-off curve, as it relates to distance from the center, you can say, "Oh, look, there's a there's a, a spatial distribution component as well." So um, it's often useful to combine these things. All right, um, let's see. Production, use. Okay. Uh, chain of exchange. So the production of different artifacts can tell us also about Uh, how far it's traveled, where it's from, um, and how important it is. Um, Curation. I don't have pens, markers. There was one here yesterday, but now it's gone. don't tell this person. Oh, yeah. It's an emergency I'm borrowing. The idea of curation is basically, um, although we might know that from... uh, Museum context. Uh, curation is the idea that uh, somebody is much more careful with uh, a certain resource, and they try and extend its use life. For example, if you don't have the cash to buy a new phone right now, and you drop your phone on the ground, and it cracks, and you still keep using it, um, and then it you know, keep, gets spilled you know, pop on it or whatever, and it gets all sticky, and you still keep using it because you don't have money to buy a new one. Right? That would be an example of curation. You're trying to stretch out that use life. And we see in the archaeological record, um, evidence of curation, so retouching blades when they get um, broken, you know, uh, reworking that stone tool, uh, repurposing, recycling. This all increases as we get farther from the center. right? So the amount of curation is going to go up uh, as your distance increases uh, because it's harder to get these items, uh, it's harder to replace them, uh, and they're more va- they're more valuable because that um, the transport of them adds cost, right? Uh, so you don't want to so you don't want to waste something that is a, a rare, expensive import, uh, or even a common everyday import, but that you still have to uh, shell out for. You're going to try and make it stretch as far as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's some, some information about, that can give us some additional information um, about, uh, <laughs> in terms of use, uh, we have, let me just double check, I just want, boop, just want to make sure I didn't miss anything there, that was important about the lab, uh, sorry about this, boop, 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 boop. please pause okay Uh, one final thing to note about production Um, we will also see different locations uh, and Some things are produced at their source and then shipped in their final form. Other things are shipped in more raw material sort of uh, shape, and then they're finished at the location where they're used. Um, Usually things that are finished at the location where they're used um, are more fragile uh, and don't ship as well. So like a blade, for example, if you made a whole bunch of blades at the source of your stone tools and then you piled them in a big basket and shipped them off, they would all get broken and chipped. So most of the time they would um, break down all the excess off this piece of stone. They would take off you know, the cortex or the outside of the stone and they would form it into this what's called a core. And then they would ship um, because you're not shipping extra weight, but you're not shipping it in a form that's going to get damaged because it's pretty solid still in that state. Um, so um, we can see... Uh, sometimes how things have been transported because of how they've been produced. Okay. Um, Another important aspect of trade and exchange is how things are used because that can tell us a lot about the society. Uh, For example, uh, even in ancient societies, we see things that are um, either effigies or outright fakes uh, of more expensive um, imported often or... High class items um, and so you know today we get fake Gucci bags um, or very real looking Gucci bags um, which you know for all intents and functional purposes really don't have any difference from a real Gucci bag okay I know like if you're really into purses maybe it is a better material or whatever but you know is it worth seven times more I don't know probably not but That tells us about the value that we put as a society on certain things like this. I keep using Gucci bags because they're a fun uh, example about fakes. But um, in the ancient world, we see trends um, and local fashion, uh, and especially things that are decorative, being affected by by imports. And people often will, you can see what is considered to be socially valuable in fakes, because you're not going to fake something that isn't socially valuable, right? Like, uh, you're not going to make... Nobody's, like, knocking off store-brand cornflakes, right? Because store-brand cornflakes are a knockoff of cornflakes already, right? So you're not... And they don't have the social prestige as name-brand cereals, right? Because I, I remember when I was growing up, there were I had friends who had name-brand cereals, and then I had friends who had the store-brand cereals. And really, there's no much difference other than the social prestige of being able to buy... As you know, as a seven-year-old, the prestige of buying the name brand. Oh, guys get real frosted flakes. So much better, or not? But the fact that um, you know nobody's knocking off the, um, things that aren't valuable to society uh, can give us an insight of what is valuable, as archaeologists, and uh, discard again tells us quite a lot about what society values and how they value it uh, in terms of uh, trade and exchange. Things that are valuable, like uh, gold and other, other things that society deems to be valuable, tend not to be discarded. Uh, if we find them in the archaeological record, they're either put there deliberately uh, in burials or for some other metaphysical reason, right? Uh, for the dead to enjoy after the death or something like that. Or they're discarded uh, by accident lost in a hoard, perhaps. You hide it in the ground before um, before some sort of uh, conflict happens in hopes that the Vikings coming in to raid your town don't find all your buried gold jewelry, right? Um, so that can uh, speak pretty clearly to what's important to a society. It can also, um, Discard also tells us about, let's see, with exchange. Yeah, that's the main thing that I want to get over. Okay, cool. All right, let's talk about two different models of exchange. So mostly I've been talking about how we know about exchange and how we trace it, kind of the nuts and bolts. But this is the the next level. This is how we think about what we see. So these think of world systems theory and pure polities as different colored sunglasses that you put on to look at the data. The data don't change, but when you look at them through different colored sunglasses, you have a different effect, right? Uh, You see them in a different light, perhaps, or a different point of view. These are all analogies to uh, looking at things through different models or different theories. So world systems theory basically posits that the world, especially when we get to state-level societies or larger, more complex, more people, functions on a powerful center, Dominating a periphery. Now, this uh, the center is called the core, and the outside or the colonies or the region that it dominates is called the periphery. So, core peri- sometimes this is called the core periphery per- peri- uh, model of, of exchange. And the center usually has the seat of military power economic power, civic religious power. And what happens is raw materials from the periphery come in. And in the core, that's where a lot of the uh, specialists, the craft specialists, the people who are making, um, you know, raw materials into fancy finished furniture or beautiful uh, vases or, uh, grapes into wine, or what have you, right? And then the core sells these finished products back to the periphery at a profit. You can see this happening in pretty much every colonial uh, power in, you know, in your world history class that you might have had in high school or here, um, where we learned about, you know, the British Empire. In this case. Britain would be the core, and the empire would be the periphery. And we can see all of the cotton coming from India to the uh, mills in England, where they would make uh, the fabric uh, out of the cotton and then sell the cotton back to India at a great markup, and they would make a lot of money. They also dominated uh, economically and militarily, right? And through this core periphery model, we can look at how Britain kind of dominated Uh, the early 1900s. Um, This is one model that I'll explicitly be using to describe Rome and how Rome interacted with its colonies, much in the same way that Britain did with its colonies. Um, And I'll argue that Rome kind of uh, hollowed itself out and weakened the core And then the periphery kind of uh, took over and became more important and powerful. Um, This is a theory that has been talked about a lot more in the realms of colonialism in the last 300 years rather than uh, archaeology. But it's a really powerful theory. It's much more complex, detailed than I'm really presenting today right now. But uh, if you're interested, you can look up writings from a guy named uh, Wallerstein. who was the progenitor of, of this world systems theory. He has like three or four books like this thick talking about European history um, in world systems theory. Uh, it's, it's pretty useful, a uh, pretty powerful sort of uh, lens to view things through. Um, and so we can look at um, a lot of ancient societies in the same way. And if you think about it, um, all of the things I've talked about before with, uh, with, uh, with items, with the production of them, the use, and the discard, you can see, all, you can see the core and the periphery based on what types of artifacts they're going to have, right? You're going to have um, a lot of evidence of raw material production in the periphery. You're going to have, if it's looking at stone tools, you're going to see a lot of um, the edges. Um, so if you have a rock and you take all the facing off it to make that core... These pieces are really identifiable as early shaping pieces. And you'd find those in the, co- in the periphery. And then they'd be sent to the middle um, and used right by the higher prestige people in the capital or whatever. Um, and we'd be able to see this by what types of debitage and what types of materials and discard are in the different areas. So we could really reconstruct what's the core and what's the periphery in these ancient societies. All right. Another model of exchange I want to talk about is peer polities, and peer pol- polity is a, an autonomous administrative unit. So it comes from the, the word polis, town, um, like metropolis, right? It's the same. It's the same base, polis. Um, Istanbul used to be Istanpolis, like uh, the town. Anyway, um, this is a polity could be a a nation-state like us uh, in the United States it could be a city-state like the Vatican. It doesn't have to be a huge, large country. Uh, it could just be a city. Most of um, the Maya, for example, lived in city-states where a city was the main capital um, with a little area around it. Um, but as long as it's autonomous, so it couldn't be a colony. It couldn't be, um, yeah, it couldn't be a colony or. Or under the boot heel of someone else, it has to be autonomous. And we'll talk about eight forms of peer polities, or peer polity interaction. This is really how two individual, it's like uh, political relations in the ancient world. So one way that polities, and I guess we can also say that this is how polities interact today, uh, is Competition. You can attempt to make your group better than your neighbors, and you show that through all kinds of different things. If we want to think about the Cold War, the space race. Now, I don't want to knock the wonderful science experiment that it was to send people to the moon and into orbit um, because we got all kinds of neat things from the space program, but if we wanted to dump a whole bunch of money into something that really doesn't amount to anything In particular, the space race would have been a good example. Like, yes, we did get a lot of scientific knowledge, and that's great. And I don't knock scientific knowledge for its own sake. I'm a scientist, and I'm super happy with the government spending money on that. However, if they took the same money and tried to spend it on, like, curing diseases, we probably would have cured a couple diseases instead, right? Like, there are real-world problems we could have been dealing with. But because of the competition with the Soviets and wanting to uh, learn to build rockets that could take a nuclear payload to the other side of the world under the guise of scientific research. Uh, We spent a lot of money on the space race, and so did the Soviets, right? That is one way that we, uh, as the United States and the Soviets, as their own polity, tried to show that they were faster, smarter, and better than their neighbors. Um, There's a lot of reasons to show your dominance in the international community, because uh, people deal differently with this, the dominant powers, right? They're going to give them uh, different trade deals. They're going to uh, perhaps not attack them, uh, right? So there might be reasons why one would want to compete with their neighbors to show that they are bigger, better, stronger, and badder, right? And then there's competitive emulation. This is usually done where a, one neighbor who is generally perceived to be slightly subordinate wants to... Emulate or take on, uh, copy the prestige of another uh, society next to them. So, right, we have, let's say, um, the U.S. and the Soviets racing to the moon. Well, if France was like, hey, we're we're you know superpowers too, we're going to build a space state. You know, we're going to build a space program. That would be a type of competitive emulation, right? Trying to um, show that they are also on the same path. Um, or you could also be doing it because you see something and, you know, without much ego, you say, oh, that's a really good idea. We should adopt that. And we'll see that with, um, for, for example, the Egyptians. The Egyptians were masters of, on the one hand, Egyptians were like really isolationist and really jingoistic and xenophobic. And they were like, oh, they, made, they just had like all these really mean And uh, mean things to say about Highlanders, which are people that come from outside the Egyptian, uh, the Nile Valley, and they would just like mercilessly rip on them in their texts, and they would make fun of them, their jokes, and it's all this stuff and like curses. They just really officially hated everything and everybody from outside the valley. But uh, one thing we think about as being really important to Egyptian culture is writing. They saw writing happening in the Middle East, and then they took that and said, okay, let's create our own writing system. And they did. They saw uh, domesticated animals from outside, and they brought them in and adapted them and made them their own. They saw chariots. They saw a lot of external technology, and they had to bring it in and adapt it and make it authentically Egyptian before they could use it. So they would see things outside and say, hey, that's a good idea. Let's adopt that and use it. Japan did the same thing when it uh, stopped its isolation. And also after World War II, they... Uh, Japan the Japanese are like the epitome of competitive um, adoption and emulation because they uh, have been adopting from, first from China um, and, and more lately from the West and making it their own and improving upon it, right? Uh, warfare. Pretty obvious way that uh, two independent uh, nations or nation-states can interact. Doesn't need a ton of explanation. Direct physical competition for territory, wealth, and/or ideas. Um, usually, um, you know, the cynic in me wants to say it's always for territory or wealth, and they use ideas to justify it. But that's not necessarily true. Um, I think that you know, for example, the Crusades were primarily—and I'm not a Crusade scholar, so I might be corrected by somebody who studies them more often—but are uh, more deeply. But it seems that most of the peasants who took up arms and marched to the Middle East to die was largely ideational, like it was based on a war of ideas, right? They weren't going down there to try and take over in a real geopolitical way the Middle East. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, But yeah, um, we're all well aware of different uh, wars war for territory or wealth or economic control of an area. Those are pretty pretty clear. Okay, Uh, transmission of innovation. Um, There are different ways that technology spread, um, and they usually spread between, you know, you could look at them as spreading between peer polities. Uh, It could be somewhat competitive emulation. That kind of falls under this. Um, But there are certainly technologies that people wouldn't uh, want to share. For example, last night I was staying with a friend after uh, my talk in St. Louis, and he's like, uh, like, oh, we should watch this show, you'll love it. They make swords out of stuff. I'm like, okay, cool. And so they made this um, their challenge was making this like ancient Egyptian battle sword, and it was pretty, you know, bass. The guys with the hammers and the forges and they're making these ancient Egyptian battle swords and then testing them on like poor Old, you know, dead pigs and things like that. Okay, great. But we were talking about it, and it's like, well, that would have been like the knowledge of how to bend and forge that steel into that shape in a strength, you know, in a strength strong enough to cut through people and things like that. That would have been like a state secret, right? And so that type of technological innovation, the ability to make carbon steel or folded steel blades, for example, would have been a technological information that perhaps would have been stolen. Much like today, we have spies who try and steal atomic secrets or whatever uh, through illicit means. Same thing would have happened back then, right? We don't think of sword technology as particularly cutting edge. Uh Uh-huh, get it? Cutting edge swords. Um, But back then, they would have been, right? Because if you are a bronze, if you're an army full of bronze swords and you come up against a society that has steel blades like, you know, Japanese uh, katanas, which actually that technology started in the Middle East, um, you'd get your butt handed to you. <laughs> Perhaps little, literally, because I could cut you apart. Um, sometimes things would be, part, there, it doesn't have to be a, a restricted technology. Sometimes things like religion are purposefully shared, you know, very openly shared, and explicitly like, our religion's the best, you should learn all about it, sort of shared, right? So there, it doesn't have to be stolen. Uh, there are certainly plenty of reasons why Different ideologies or uh, technologies are shared, um, sometimes through purchase. For example, corn uh, was spread throughout the New World, uh, up from Mexico, uh, starting around, well, it really took off in the late, like during the Middle Ages in Europe. Uh, Corn and beans were spreading across the New World, especially in North America, and that was probably through trade, through uh, merchants going around. I don't think there was a cult of the corn going around, where people were just sharing, like, ooh, try our corn. Grow it yourself. It's the best, like some sort of weird cult. And I don't think it was stolen. I don't think anyone was protecting the corn and saying, no, you can't steal it. There was no Monsanto at that time. Um, And so it was probably spread through merchants saying, hey, try this new seed. It's awesome. Symbolic entertainment is a fun one. This is something like a modern example would be the Olympics. This would be how a a common set of ideas um, would bring people together who otherwise might not interact in a productive way. So yeah, Olympics are a pretty great example of that. Um, Often these are sporting events, right? It's kind of the opposite of warfare. Uh, It's a very physical competition with winners and losers, but this way you don't necessarily die. Well, depending on the sport, I suppose. And this is, uh, it's not just, you know, we, we have it. we didn't invent the Olympics in the Western world, like uh, Olympics specifically, sure, but uh, competitions between villages, towns, or pure apologies is, goes back quite a long ways. Um, even before people were living in settled societies, it's very likely that when people met up um, in the summertime, a lot of times uh, hunter-gatherers would gather in one large area and there would be hundreds of people and they would probably have a lot of like physical competitions, wrestling, and things like that. Things like that. Ceremonial exchange. This is uh, used by. This is where elites cement friendships by exchanging things between them. Usually, they're symbolic. So, modern examples are when heads of state come to visit the United States. Um, perhaps they would give the president, uh, you know, uh, a work of art or uh, something very symbolic to their uh, to their country, and you know, perhaps our president would give them a copy of his, his book. I don't know. Uh, but it's basically a, a, an exchange of things that aren't of real great economic value, but they cement the social ties between them. Today, it's usually gifts, but in the past it would have been things like daughters. Um, usually it was daughters uh, or sons. Sometimes if there was a If there was a polity that needed a new king because all the male heirs had died, perhaps your best friend and ally would give you a son who would come to sit on your throne. That's a great way to um, strengthen ties between your countries, don't you think? But also it was pretty often like giving daughters to be new marriage partners to your sons or to uh, what have you, right? So it it didn't have to be just, you know, trinkets. It could be people. Hooray! Hooray! A lot of times we're talking, the last couple I've been talking about are kind of high-level elite exchanges between polities. But we can't forget, or uh, we shouldn't forget, you know, the common person. Uh, Normal, everyday people, even between warring polities, would often trade things amongst themselves. And this would be a major part of the economy. So let's say we have, I get in trouble if I draw these um, next to one another because then they look a little... Uh, unsavory for classroom. Um, so let's say these two these two centers are at war with one another. Ah, they don't like each other. Uh, but they have a border between them. And most of the time in the ancient world, it was rare to have like a border wall that uh, we're apparently building. Um, so that didn't really exist very much in ancient history. And if it did exist, it was mostly for uh military protection not for keeping commoners out. So even walls had gates and people even if their leaders were at war, they could come and go and trade basic normal commodities. Not usually valuables maybe, but they can definitely go and trade amongst themselves for, you know, corn or wheat or, you know, selling animals back and or, you know, 90% of them are agrarian farmers, so they're going to be trading a lot of goods like that, right? So basic things can still be traded even if people are at war. Um, and so while this might not be a top-tier, elite-level exchange, it's still a pretty robust part of the economy. Um, another type of peer polity exchange, the eighth one, is language and ethnicity. And this often links polities that might not be next to one another or might not be otherwise well-related if they share a common language or a common country of, or ethnicity of origin or a uh, religion, they might um, bond together over that, right? There is, a re- there is a reason, and not insubstantial reason, that the United States helped England out in both the First and Second World War uh, that has to do with a shared language and, at least at the elite level of our society, um, you know, an Anglo origin of, of this country, with a lot of the top-level people coming from England, right? And even though we went to war with them to get our independence, there was still some ethnic relationship there that overrode the fact that we had plenty of Germans living in the United States Um, during both the First and Second World War. uh, We still sided with England. This is uh, not unusual in the past either. Um, There are especially religious... um, related polities that might not otherwise be friends. They might band together. Um, So it's very easy to imagine um, Muslim and Christian uh, polities banding together against one another in the past, during the Crusades, for example. Uh, Oftentimes, you might have small internecine squabbles. right? You might have Protestants and Catholics fighting. But when it comes to fighting a whole other religion, they might band together and put their differences aside for the minute, perhaps. yeah, um, yeah. So that's I think that one's pretty clear, and hooray, we're caught up. So that's the end of uh, that's the end of trade and exchange, and we'll pick up with Rome, and we'll end ten minutes early. Hooray! Um, and we'll pick up there on Friday, right? Yes. The Question. One, um, yes, please. Competitive emulation. It could be a bandwagon, sure. Um, it's often used, so usually we're looking at examples and trying to put them in different categories. Um, and so yeah, this would be something where like you're specifically trying to emulate and maybe even show up the per the next town over or the next group over, right by saying, oh, we're, oh, yeah, you, you can grow that much, but we can grow that much and then a little more, right? So you might be trying to like, do something even better than they did that so it kind of can the competitive part can kind of fit into straight-up competition yeah they can they can kind of overlap you can have more than one at a time thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture find out more by visiting our website lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com there you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar and other things going on around the Institute You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like license, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.